0: This is Brand and New, from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property.
1: I am Audrey Dover, welcome to Brand and New. Over the last decades, the domain of trademark law and the scope of trademark protection have grown exponentially. And a wide variety of non-traditional marks, including color, sound, smell, and shape marks, can now be registered in many jurisdictions. However, this continuous extension of trademark protection has led to debates and controversies about the impact of these non-traditional marks on fundamental rights, such as freedom of competition and freedom of expression, and also on the IP system as a whole. But these tensions have led to increasing IP office and court decisions in this area across several jurisdictions, addressing the validity of these marks. Irene Calboli has analyzed in depth the questions raised by the acceptance of non-traditional trademarks with an interdisciplinary approach. She is professor of law at Texas A&M University School of Law, fellow at the Transatlantic Technology Law Forum at Stanford Law School, a visiting professor in many academic institutions worldwide. Irene, who is a dedicated teacher and a prolific scholar, published articles and books in the area of intellectual property law, including the book The Protection of Non-Traditional Trademarks: Critical Perspectives, in 2018, with Martin St. Kleben. First, Irene, could you tell us more about your interest and I would say even your passion for non-traditional trademarks? And I know it's a difficult task, but how could you define them in few words? Um, so let's start
2: from that. We just had a conference organized by the European uh, uh, project in South Asia called Key, uh where INTA CEO Etienne uh, Sainz-Acedo actually gave a very nice presentation. The conference and many of the event that I focus on this topic, really trying to map uh, the new type of marks. The new type of marks includes primarily sounds, possibly smell, technically also taste could be uh, registered, even though uh, we have uh, almost no uh, marks related to taste. Of course, multimedia marks are becoming more common, holograms, but I would say, and that's what interests me particularly, When we talk about non-traditional trademark, we still see uh, discussion and litigation or opposition proceeding related to shapes, um, single colors, combination of colors. Mm -hmm. So the world of non-traditional trademark is not just the very advanced, very new type of mark, such as the multimedia or the smells. Uh, It's really still includes, at least in my view, and I would say in the view of many of the judges and the experts, also the shape and the colors and the combination of colors, which indeed could be a bit more problematic uh, uh, for the pros and cons of non-traditional trademark than, say, multimedia marks or other type of marks, also because of the amount of registration or application in this area.
1: Could we go a little bit deeper into what we call sensory marks, such as scents, flavors, colors, and textures? Last year, the U.S. company Hasbro hit the news in the IP world by getting its Play-Doh compound scent registered as a federal trademark. And since the 90s, it's well established under U.S. federal law that beyond graphic signs, uh, words, logos, or packaging, or product designs, non-traditional trademarks are eligible to trademark protection if the applicant can demonstrate they are non-functional and distinctive. But how does it work in practice? Uh, As
2: you precisely pointed out, uh, there are several requirements for the registration and the protection of a sign, uh, a trademark being defined as a sign. And this is first and foremost, the sign has to be distinctive Distinctiveness can be inherent or acquired through use, and the sign has to be in no conflict with pre-existing rights. So, in the case of non-traditional trademarks, what we have seen in practice is that the more evidence an applicant can show of distinctiveness, use... Recognition by the public of mm-hmm. that sign as the indicators of the origin of the product, the higher the likelihood that that sign can be registered and protected as a trademark. Even though we don't have a rule that says non-traditional trademark have to have secondary meaning, in uh, the United States, We have a decision, the Walmart decision for trade dress that does say that when you look at trade dress, Justice Scalia divided between product packaging and product design and Mm -hmm. making the distinction and of course the use of secondary meaning in that specific context. But in general, we don't have, since non-traditional trademark are more than just trade dress, uh, they can overlap with this uh, concept of trade dress, but uh, they can be, again, multi-scent, uh, they can be multimedia marks. There is no a rule that says uh, non-traditional marks have to have secondary meaning to be registered or acquire distinctiveness, but in practice, the highest the number of evidence that an applicant can present to prove that the mark has already a link or that the publisher recognizes that mark as distinctive of that product and that company the higher the likelihood that uh, that mark can be registered or at least uh, can overcome possible opposition uh, because we have seen, mostly in the European Union at this point, opposition to the registration of KitKat for finger shape by Nestlé, eventually that was not successful. Uh, We have seen opposition to the registration of the purple color by Cadbury. Uh, We have seen opposition to the registration of the London taxi cab and so on. In many instances, this might be easily distinctive. Um, I wouldn't question that the four-finger shape is distinctive of Kit Kat. However, the evidence, as they were gathered by the applicants in that specific case, were not satisfactory for the court. It's better to have more rather than less in these specific instances, even though the law doesn't require more evidence, I would say, in practice, sometime for some marks that the applicant could see could become a bit more problematic than it could be a good idea to have a good um, series of evidence. Also narrow application rather than broadening it too much. Uh, Tremor practice and practitioner know they always play on a very fine line about we want to try to claim uh, the actual mark, but perhaps uh, make it general enough to capture some minor variations for non-traditional trademarks, guidelines are fairly strict. The very recent case by the Court of Justice on the colors, combination of color for the Red Bull application, so the the Pantone and the gray, the uh, application was rejected precisely because the shade of color was not expressly Uh, narrowed so the application was too broad. And so I think here is where it comes down to evidence. It comes down to, well, preparing your application uh, for possibly
1: more scrutiny than a more traditional trademark. Sure. And I guess there are challenges that are really specific to each category of sensory trademark. Uh, For instance, overcoming the subjectivity in a flavor description or offering proof of non-functionality for scents when the purpose of a perfume is precisely to trigger an olfactive stimulus. Uh, I guess it's not an easy task, right?
2: No, it's not an easy task, even though not all uh, national laws require uh, graphical representation, many still do. Even the um, changes uh, in the European Directive since 2015 Uh, No longer there is a requirement of graphic representation, but there is still the requirement of visual perceptibility. Um, So how you describe uh, these marks in a way that clearly defines them for the purpose of infringement (laughs) later is crucial. To a large extent, uh, some of these, um, say, smells for perfumes, they're highly functional. The perfume industry is heavily protected through trade secret. I would say, while the shape of the bottle could be protected as a trademark when it is really iconic, uh, say the Chanel Number no. Five, I personally doubt that many of these fragrances could qualify or should qualify for protection as a mark because they would also be very difficult to recognize in the marketplace just by mm-hmm. themselves. Consumers don't buy the perfume just you know following the scents; uh, they tend to look at the, the box, uh, the name, uh, the shape. So even though some perfume are very distinct and you can recognize them when the individual uh, wears them, it might be very difficult. The variation of the flavor may change depending on the skin. It's something that I would say you still want to try to rely on your more traditional trademarks, perhaps adding the non-traditional trademark if it's granted, but we clearly saw that courts are very skeptical about
1: this mark. Without the ability to distinguish sense of flavors accurately proving or disproving infringement might be an almost impossible task. And case law is not very helpful as there's very little precedent in the U.S. federal courts regarding non-traditional marks. From a litigation perspective, is an infringement claim in relation to a non-traditional trademark to be handled differently from other kinds of trademark infringement claims? And if so, to what extent For example, how would the likelihood of confusion analysis play out for sensory trademarks?
2: Now, this is a very good question. So, again, if we divide the non-traditional trademark between the more traditional non-traditional marks, so the mm-hmm. shape and the color, we have had a large amount of litigation on both sides of the Atlantic and in other jurisdictions at this point. So we had the Lego brick, we had uh, the La Bouton red sole shoe, we have had the Kit Kat, uh, how we have the Cadbury colors. While we didn't have uh, many, also because we don't have that many registration to be in you know, at this point uh, of uh, more non-traditional uh, new type of marks, such as again multimedia or factories or something like a taste. Those uh, clearly on the colors and the shapes, the traditional confusion test uh, is a bit short. The case law tends to often favor the defendant. Uh, courts are clearly concerned about competition, like Justice Scalia was in Walmart. Uh, sure. Trying to redress uh, uh, the secondary meaning and uh, trade dress protection. But in general, the likelihood of confusion test uh, applies at the point of sale. So, if whether consumer is confused at the moment when consumer makes the purchase, that is the traditional standard for infringement. And it doesn't need to be actual confusion, even though proof of actual confusion can assist uh, in finding infringement. In the United States, we have additional doctrine, confusion as to the sponsorship, confusion uh, post-sale. However, this idea of post-sale confusion is not necessarily spread across the world everywhere in the courts both as civil law and common law. So because the consumer will not be confused at the point of sale the la bouton purchaser the louis vuitton purchaser the chanel purchaser will know specifically what they buy it is uh, the post-sale confusion because very rarely these marks are by themselves on the product you never purchase a pair of La Bouton shoes unless you buy them in the La Bouton store with the La Bouton logo, with the La Bouton box. And so the only moment where confusion can happen is when somebody wears the product and walks, and somebody else sees the products and can get confused as to the origin. And so here is really at the moment of infringement to be able to prove that becomes difficult. Now, of course, if the mark is famous, I would put many of non-traditional trademarks in the famous category, well-known marks, then we don't need to have uh, confusion. We need just to prove dilution. But we know that courts are even more skeptical about dilution. We want to have these rights, but we need to very clearly make a long-term assessment of enforceability and litigation enforceability. Certainly to have the protection might be very useful for a company, but I would say the offices now are clearly more careful in granting these marks because of fears of access competition, additional protection for expired design or expired patents and the push for innovation. We cannot permit that a company sits on certain shape or certain color or certain aesthetic feature forever because trademark protection is forever preventing everybody else from using these so clearly there is more concerns about that the question is will i be able to protect it and even if i have a registration will i be able to enforce it and to what extent just through a seasoned disease system, but if that will be challenged into a litigation forum, will I be able to keep my trademarks? I think the Bouton judicial history in the United States was very, very emblematic in, in this specific context because the Bouton company had brought to the courts Yves Saint Laurent for making an old red shoe. Yves Saint Laurent was making a series of monochromatic shoes of all colors and Bouton decided to sue them for the all red shoe. Mm-hmm. And in the first instance, the court said, you cannot monopolize a mark and they were ready to cancel their marks. Mm-hmm. On appeal, the court said, you have a contrast trademark. You have a position mark, which is basically contrast, so red against another color, but you cannot prevent somebody from doing an all red shoe. So that's clearly show uh, your mark that was broader before, ended up surviving, almost luckily, litigation, but came out of litigation after certainly many uh, $1,000 plus expenses uh, narrower. And so the question is, do you want to really put yourself through that as a company? Um, Maybe yes, but maybe when you need to look at budget and allocation of expenses, maybe you (laughs) want to think uh, strategically. And I think it's very important for a company to understand the the framework to decide what makes uh, uh, the best business sense when taking legal action decisions.
0: INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth and innovation.
1: Taking a step back, Irene, uh, what's the impact of the protection of non-traditional marks on the freedom of competition or, or to put things differently from a policy, regulatory or economic perspective? Is it too much of a legal stretch, and are there actually good reasons not to promote the registration of non-traditional trademarks?
2: If you ask Irene, the scholar, she will respond, <laughs> um, we don't need We don't need non-traditional trademarks because companies have other ways to identify the products. they always have a main mark. to a large extent, a lot of these marks are. Design. There is other way to protect them through design protection, design patent, through unfair competition, passing off. However, um, Irene, the former lawyers and the policy, you know, when I put, you know, the policy advisor, I see that in certain instances there are reason to protect these marks. The system we have now is clearly putting a break on uh, too many uh, applications through a fairly controlled litigation by the courts, but that doesn't mean that some of these markets that shouldn't be registered are indeed registered and possibly enforced. Uh, there are certainly some impact there, there is some impact inter- on certain type of competition and there is impact sometimes, I would say, on access. Hmm? If a company monopolizes the beautiful feature of the season, not just for two, three, four years, but potentially perpetually, that can become a problem. There is only so many colors. There is only so many combination of colors. There is only so many shapes, uh, um, sounds, and uh, And so that is problematic. Mm -hmm. Even more problematic is the appropriation as a mark of pieces of public domain, say the Mona Lisa. So there are very specific risks now. Thankfully, the market allows for a lot of infringement just to go undetected, and uh, and this, in very, in many instances, this is a very fast-paced products cycles. So what's fashionable this season will not be fashionable next season, and there's no point in going after all imitators. But the danger is having some of these rights on the books and the ability to enforce them should a company want that can indeed distort the competition. And that is a problem because should a one company own a color, should a one company own say, uh, you know, the orange for boxes like Hermes, Well, maybe one can make uh, a case for Tiffany. Tiffany almost invented the Tiffany blue, but we know that pharmaceutical companies invent a medicine, but eventually the medicine has to be let go. So uh, the question is even more than just competition is about innovation policies and incentive. What are we incentivizing? Because if we put too much protection on shapes and trademarks and so on and so forth, when we will see too much investment going that direction rather than other direction. My other concern is the impact on innovation on this company themselves. Because once you are used to have to do all your shoes with a red sole, certainly becomes a very distinctive pattern. And certainly that's very valuable. And your brand get identified with that. The same many company have pattern. Um, You know, LV, uh, Michael Kors, uh, Gucci, and so on and so forth. And then it's easier to replicate your logo as a pattern because uh, other patterns can maybe be copyrighted only. And so if you replicate your logo as a pattern, it's easier to go after counterfeiter. But you lock yourself in. Mm -hmm. So then consumer will be used, that all your products will be in a certain way. And so counterfeiter will copy you and then you are have to decide, do I change or do I go after every single limitation? And it's very difficult to go after every single limitation and extremely costly. And more importantly, if consumers are used to see you always on a certain way, particularly on a way that encompasses all your designs and
1: the cores of your products, to switch might be difficult for your consumer. Throughout your research, Irene, you have noticed major differences in the legal treatment of non-traditional marks around the globe, right? Uh, What are the markets to more mature than others, if I may use the word mature, for non-traditional trademarks recognition, or jurisdictions particularly known to be legally friendlier than others for brand owners? Well, I would say the United States is certainly very friendly
2: in the registration. At the registration level, when we look at the registration of marks, uh, non-traditional marks in the U.S., uh, at least, again, shapes, uh, colors, that tends to be uh, a very large list of, uh, uh, including single color. Uh, I would say the European Union is friendly enough, however, you know, the office, I would if I compare when we have done cross-reference of some some marks, uh, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry, we have been doing some research uh, after the f- a recent case uh, in the European Union uh, in, in England, uh, what color pills or what pharmaceutical medical devices can be protected for as trademarks. We see a bit more resistance and uh, um, a clear analysis of some of these marks, but also, Europe, I would say, is a very mature market. Several markets across the world don't have, uh, at this point in their law, the protection of uh, the new form of market, the more esoteric one. Some countries don't have protection for single color. They allow combination of colors. Some uh, countries don't have yet protection for smells and sounds. And so these multimedia marks cannot yet be protected. Say, many countries in the Southeast Asia region, for example, don't. It's also often because of uh, many of these countries require the mark to be presented graphically. And uh, often uh, it is still a reason for capacity building of offices and how we can just analyze and examine these marks. Um, Australia, the United States, Europe uh, tend to be more mature market, but there is registration certainly of shapes combination of color across the world consistently then it depends some of those have been litigated in some jurisdiction for previous conflict for example or they've been uh, opposed uh, with different results but i think uh, the world is certainly transitioned towards a more encompassing way to register this trademark. I think the Singapore Treaty on Trademarks, which is the latest in international treaty by the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is not about non-traditional trademarks, is mostly about harmonization of procedures, uh, does facilitate the registration of these marks, again, procedurally, should country decide to protect them. Mm-hmm. We are going towards a reality where, Probably these marks will be possible to be registered across the world. However, again, the question would be, will they be found to be distinctive? Will they be found to be uh, not a threat to competition? Will they be found to be non-functional? And I think that goes along with the issue of cluttering of registries. We have a lot of registers. That are clutter between yeah. quotation a with very marks, important marks that are points. non-use. Yes. Mm-hmm. many marks have been filed. Uh, the requirement for use uh, is uh, non-existing in many countries, and even in the countries such as the U.S., where you have to have a, a statement of use before registration, the threshold is very low. And even more problematic, the renewal uh, proof and evidence of use is extremely low, again, because of the capacity of the offices most of the time. Basically, the cost of renewing your marks is very low. However, if you don't really use it, then it gets into the cluttering uh, bucket of uh, a registry. In a world where frame marks are becoming a scarce commodity, the fact that there are so many marks in the register that really are registered but not in use or have been abandoned but there's never been an abandonment.
1: I have now few rapid fire questions for you, whose brain would you like to have had?
2: This is a difficult question, uh, I would have liked to have the brain of uh, a particularly famous Italian painter slash engineer was uh, Leonardo da Vinci. That's maybe very ambitious on my part, but I think uh, Leonardo da Vinci was a genius and uh, a genius in every possible sense, Uh, engineering, painting, experimental. He was also very smart in working with powerful and at the same time being able to put forward what he thought uh, in terms of his techniques. And so I am somebody I truly admire.
1: What is the next big brand new thing for you?
2: Well, I think everybody talks about artificial intelligence now, blockchain and so on. I want to go the other way. As part of this phenomenon, what is really, and I see that happily happen, is a revival of origin, a revival of single origin product, revival of localization within globalization, an appreciation for genuine products from country X, region Y. People are more careful about what they eat, what they wear. I like the fact that locality um, is becoming more important than, say, 10. 15 years ago. I like the fact that our consumers are becoming more brand conscious in terms of corporate responsibility and fair trade and green technology. For me, the next big thing is how technology will help the emergence of uh, locality and fair trade, uh, hopefully even more than what we're already seeing. And I see a trend towards that.
1: The last book you read,
2: So the last book I read, which is not a law book, it's uh, The Two Sisters. It's uh, the story of Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Ginsburg as the two women in the Supreme Court. And it's a really nice book.
1: What would you have liked to invent or to
2: create? Uh, moving uh, across the world is something that many of us have to do. And if we could find a way to do do it faster and with less impact on the environment, I think that would be what I really would like to invite. Perfect.
1: Thank you so much, Irene. Thank you. My guest today was Irene Calboli, professor of law at Texas A&M University School of Law.
0: Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.